This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're uh, with you today to talk about film. Hi. How are Hi. you? Hi. I'm great. How are you? I-, I will say that I am officially severed from my job. Oh. So I am untethered from the company that I used to Does that mean for. we can start talking major shit? <laughs> well, start dropping bombs? Does that mean secrets come out, Millie? Okay, I saw this multiple times when I worked at this the, my prior company. People cutting a donut hole in half. The fuck? That, to me, is depraved behavior. A donut hole is not a full donut. It is a small hole. And the fact that somebody was in there being like, well, I just want half of this tiny two-inch hole. No. You know when I cut a donut hole in half? And I taught my goddaughter this, and it blew her little tiny fucking mind, when I'm making a donut hole ice cream sandwich. Yes. I used to see that shit all the time in academia, where people would be cutting bagels in half, and not the sliced way, but like the... The, the top way, not the horizontal way, but vertical. Oh, God. So you're leaving me with a fucking half-moon-ass bagel? My point is that who the fuck is going to come around and take the other half of the donut hole that you just Thank cut? you. Just eat the other half. Calorically speaking, you are already down the road. You already spent <laughs> the calories eating a donut. Just eat the other half of the fucking donut hole. And it just <gasps> drove me crazy. And especially if, like, you were late that day. You're like, yo, I got to go to the break room because they brought donut holes and bagels and I got to see what else is left. And it's a bunch of half sawed off, no. crusty fucking pastry bagel holes. I'm just like, this is depraved. No. Finish what you start. Finish what you start. And look, my apologies to anyone out there who is food insecure that we're just talking about. This is, a, this is what's annoying to us about food, but... This is part of the food insecurity problem. It's like, who's going to eat the rest of that shit that you've already put your hands on? It's just going to get thrown out. Like, you're not helping anyone here, and you're not even helping yourself. Just eat the other half of the donut hole. That is depraved. That is truly like a societal ill. I don't know what has happened to us that that is now something people think is a cool thing to do. To me, it was sort of signaling like, (laughs) well, I'm... I can't eat this entire donut hole, so I'm just going to half it. And and when it comes down to it, yeah, it's that same thing. It comes, from, like, in your mind as a person who comes in behind it, you're like, well, they already, like, handled yeah. the hole. 
So I'm not going to pick it up and eat it. Like, I'm just not. So it gets thrown away. So it's just wasteful. It's just wasteful at the end of the day. It's wasteful as fuck. It's selfish and wasteful. Nobody wants anything that you've been. If they're pre-cut, you can ask for that sometimes, too, because I've worked in lots of corporate and office environments. You can ask for whoever's delivering your food or whatever food service you're using to cut them in half at the establishment. Yeah. So that way they're not just wasted because nobody wants, like, I just saw you come out of the bathroom and I I worked in a lot of places where I guarantee 90% of the people I work with were not washing their hands after the bathroom. Look, this is probably not shocking to anybody, but like, there is so much waste in corporate America. It is unbelievable. And I'll tell you as somebody, there's actually this incredible article about it. I think it was in either the New York or something about how during COVID, right? These commercial office buildings, they were unoccupied because everybody was working from home. Right. And so what ended up happening was, is that these companies, some of them decided to purge their commercial real estate entirely. Not all of them. Right. Because a lot of people are back to the office like five days a week, which I actually think is also depraved, but whatever, Mm -hmm. that's for another time. But basically they had these unused or empty, you know, office buildings that were filled with, like, chairs, desks, computer printers, computer parts, paper, like, etc. And they were just like, well, I guess we'll just put this all in a dumpster. The fuck? And so there was, was like, an article that was talking about how there were, like, companies in New York City that were throwing away $1,000 Herman Miller chairs... Because no, they just were like, well, nobody's here, and we've got like a hundred of these fancy designer chairs, what? and we don't know what to do with them, so we'll just put them in the garbage. Okay, if you were paying for a giant amount of office space, and now you just have a bunch of stuff, it would still cost a fraction of the amount of what you were paying to rent or lease a space to just rent a storage unit and figure it out at another time. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Well, or just, like, the idea that you wouldn't just, like, try to donate it or, like, do something with them. Like, give me a chair. Give me a, yeah. a Herman Miller chair. I would love That's what love I mean. One. Like, if you can't figure it out in the in the height of COVID, I get it. But, like, you can pay a couple hundred bucks a month for a storage unit and then give them away or sell them after everyone crawls out of their houses again. Yeah. The fuck? When it comes down to the donut hole scenario, I mean— that's partially a joke, but it's also also a thing. Like, where I'm just it's like... It's not a joke. No, it's... To me, it's this thing of, like, A, the, the reasons why they give out pastries, <laughs> at least yep. in my experience, is it's like a salve, or it's a perceived salve for the fact that you're not getting paid enough money to do your job. Right. And to come into work and these things. It's like, we're never going to give you raises, but we're going to, like, do all this other stuff, like, give you donuts. See, that's why the half of a donut hole is indicative of a larger problem. Because it's not only the, we're giving you this so that you don't pay attention to how little we're actually paying you to do your job. But it's also, look at what you've done to us. Look at the austerity measures that you have you've imbued in us so that we don't even feel good eating an entire fucking donut hole. You make me feel so (laughs) shitty here that I feel greedy if I have a whole-ass donut hole. Meanwhile, you're pillaging the goddamn land 
for parts and sh- and throwing out chairs and whatever. Like the greed is so it's so egregious. Yeah. At the upper level, and you make us feel like we're not even worth a whole ass donut hole. You fucks. Well, and it's those days are gone for me because I'm sitting here going like, <laughs> I mean, I love donut holes, but it's mostly just like you don't want to commit to the calories. <laughs> at the end of the day, you're like, I'm cutting <laughs> a donut like- hole in half because I don't want to eat this whole one because I feel like it's going to make me fat if I eat you a whole You don't want to commit to the calories. If Look, cut it in half if you're making an ice cream sandwich. That's my gift to you. Unsolicited gift for our listeners is a donut hole ice cream sandwich is the shit. Wait, so you're basically saying cut a donut hole in half and then put ice cream in between it? Yeah. My oh. goddaughter loves Dunkin' Donuts munchkins yeah she loves them same and because she loves them she can't have them all the time because she will eat everything she will just plow through everything i feel that and not leave anything for anybody else she's she's never worked in corporate america so she's not about leaving a crumb for anybody else and she's only nine years old but (laughs) so when we were hanging out and she's like i fucking love munchkins and i'm like girl i feel you have you ever done this and she's like my parents are trash. No one has ever told me. I'm like, no, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to give you the cut the donut hole in half and make the ice cream sandwich advice for your life. Your parents <laughs> should not be telling you that because that's what you will eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. When you hang out with me, you can go home and puke your fucking guts out. We could do anything you want with food and I will sh- show you all the tricks for snacks. Yeah. Blew her mind. Well, why don't you tell them what the theme is this week, and we can jump on in. All right. We are overjoyed to bring you, is it our third week? Yeah. Of uh, Black History Month here on the podcast. We are doing a theme called Whoopi Goldberg in the 80s. I mean, that was probably an easy, I I bet most people probably guessed it this week. Although... (laughs) I feel like they might be having trauma responses because our themes are usually so complicated that they probably thought it can't be that easy. Well, and it's like, okay, so there are people who are getting the general theme, but as you ironed out very early on the pod, you established the rules were you had to get the actual name of the theme in order to be right. Yeah. And that, my friend... Ain't never going to happen. It's never going to happen because you come up with like the funniest, most specific names for themes that unless somebody is like hopping around in your brain, they're never going to get it. <laughs> so we, we kind of set up this impossible task. But generally, if you try to generally guess the theme, that's one thing. But to actually get it right is going to be impossible. I feel like people get very creative in the comments, and that's what I like to see. I know you're not going to get it, but I love seeing the creativity of what you think it's going to be. Agreed. Agreed. That always kills me, so. The funny thing is that sometimes the theme is Whoopi Goldberg in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and I guarantee somebody probably probably thought or, or commented, the theme is Molly, you in danger, girl. Or like... Yeah. <laughs> they put some quote, some whoopee quote or something, or like, you know, Harpo, who this woman? Like, <laughs> that wasn't even a whoopee quote, but you know, you get it. You get it. Exactly. Well, I wanted to ask your, who, what are your thoughts on whoopee generally? And then maybe specifically in the eighties. Yeah. I, I've just always adored her. Mm-hmm. She was 
an incredibly prominent stand-up comedian when I was a kid, and my grandparents loved her, so we would always watch, like, the comic relief specials and, you know, her specials, and I just always thought she was so weird and wild and funny. Yeah. When I started seeing her in movies, I was excited. I was very excited, and I'll say this, too. She's a great actor. Yep. Like, period, point blank, she's a great actor. What cracks me up about our movies this week is these movies came out after The Color Purple. So she did this, like, historic, dramatic, all-encompassing role and then did these two comedies. Like, she's incredibly versatile. I thought it was cool to see someone like her. I mean, representation matters. We all know that. But for me, as a weird little black kid, I loved everything about her. I loved her hair. She was so funny to me. And she can do as I was remembering watching these two films, she just launches into these imitations and these voices and they're not offensive and they're not shitty, but like she launches into these characters that was just fascinating to me. It was fast. I just thought she was like a chameleon and was the coolest and so funny in the 80s and and beyond. I think that she's, you know, I don't watch The View, but she's now co-host on The View, but has just done so much in her life and just, you know, kind of a a clip version of her Wikipedia page um, is some some things that I found most interesting about her uh, that I looked up as I was researching for this this week. Well, her real name, of course, is Karen Elaine Johnson. And there's a reason why she chose Whoopi Goldberg for her stage name. Whoopi is in reference to the Whoopi Cushion. And Goldberg, she kind of weirdly said at one point, like, I just feel like I'm Jewish. And I was like, huh? Huh? And she's like, and then I read a little bit more. She's like, oh, it's like in my in my family. Like, there are members of my family who are Jewish. And I was like, oh. But then, of course, some fucking buzzkill was like, we did a whole ancestry DNA background, and she's absolutely not Jewish. Like, her family goes straight back to Africa. So... I didn't know any of this. This is all <laughs> brand new information for me. Continue, continue. So yeah, so she's she chose a stage name instead of her real name, but her name is Karen Elaine Johnson, which I think still fits. Um, she is from New York, born and raised. Uh, she lived in public housing as a kid. I think that something that is, and, and New York City, like Manhattan, something that I think is really interesting about her is that she's only one of 18 people who have ever won the EGOT which is the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, Mm. which is amazing. She's received the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, which is like the highest honor you can receive as a comedian. Mm -hmm. So she's worked in Broadway. She's worked in in all these different films. And like, like she's just done everything. But she didn't come from a place where that was a foregone conclusion for her. And she was, you know... Raised by a single mother. She has a brother. She actually had like a really, in her personal life, what I find really interesting is that she's always been a very outspoken proponent of abortion rights and LGBTQ issues, like going back to the 80s. And really just, I don't know, she's just always been very vocal about her own abortions. She's had more than one. Mm. And just really has always kind of stood up for the underdog. This is not to say that she's not without her controversy, her own controversies. Um, She's made some fucked up comments. For example, when she was talking about Roman Polanski's rape conviction 
on The View, <laughs> um, she said that it wasn't rape-rape, mm. and then later had to clarify that she was trying to distinguish between statutory rape and forcible rape, but it did not come across that well. She's also weirdly, how do I say, she's been in support of Mel Gibson by saying that she doesn't think he's racist because she knows him. She's like, I don't like what he said, but I know him and he's not racist, which feels strange to me. Mm. And she was also initially a defender of Bill Cosby at the beginning of, you know, the, when his rape, rape allegations started coming to light. And she later changed her stance. She's like, you know, there's a lot of information that points to guilt. I get it. But I don't know. She's just kind of, she's weird in that way where I think that, and I don't, I don't know why. I'm not even going to try to guess why. But she definitely, for me, some of her more controversial moments are, they come from kind of a thoughtless place. Um, in an insensitive place. Um, remember when she was dating Ted Danson and he did that whole Friars Club thing in blackface? I don't remember that. I had only heard about it, but... Yeah, yeah, like while they were dating. So there's like... I mean, look, this is a woman who is 68 years old. She right. has said some shit in her life. <laughs> like, yeah. she has stood up for herself when she felt like she was right. And she's also backtracked when she realized she was wrong. So I will yeah. just say that. Um, so... I focus on, I don't know, I like to give people a wide berth and try to give people a pathway to respectability. And when they apologize, it makes me feel like, okay, at least they're human beings. I don't know if that needs to be said or not, but you know me, I can't give someone's whole background and leave out all the, and just only give you the good stuff. Sure. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people appreciate it. I also think, yeah, you're right. I mean, she's, you know, been alive for a long time at this point and you know, has a, lived a lot of life and said a lot of things, probably said some things she didn't even remember saying. Well, primarily because she has been a huge proponent of cannabis for her whole fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually co-founded a company called Whoopi and, and Maya, and they make medical cannabis products for uh, menstrual cramps and, like, for period relief. Wow, that's awesome. So, Huge proponent of, of pot her whole life. Yeah. And again, like really philanthropic, a big activist. She's also not really, she's been married three times, but she's not about marriage anymore. She's like, you know, I, I will have live-in boyfriends sometimes, but I'm just not about it. And she's made some really funny statements about marriage that I think you should look up. Like, you know, things like, I don't want people breathing near me. Like things like, she's just really funny. Yeah. And I think that she... I don't know. She's just, she's won a lot of awards. She's very prolific. She, of course, has starred in things like Sister Act and Karina Karina and Ghost and Color Purple, like all these great dramatic roles. But she's, to me, at her best when she's funny, like in our movies this week, when she's just being weird. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's written children's books and books of non like nonfiction books. And yeah. she's just, she's done it all. Like, I don't think you can look at her life and think this is not someone who's tried everything. Yeah. I Listen, I'm so glad that you gave everybody some information about her background because there was a lot of that stuff I did, actually didn't know. And I think it's great that you kind of at least set it up a little bit to where people would maybe know a little bit of her background because that's the thing. When, I, when we were talking about doing this theme, it really like... It was a moment where I had to, like, go back to my childhood and remember just how important Whoopi Goldberg was to, like, my childhood, but, like, people of her age. Like, she yeah. literally, in the 80s, was a superstar presented to me 
And again, I was, you know, when Jumping Jack Flash came out, I was probably, you know, eight or nine or something like that. Like I was I was a young kid. But she was presented to me as like a Julia Roberts. Like she could easily, I think, especially in my movie, she was in a romantic scenario. Like she could be a romantic leading actress. She could be a leading actress. She was a comedian on the scale of like a Jerry Seinfeld or, you know, a Billy Crystal, like especially in in that era. So I just think it's amazing how she was like a superstar and everything to a certain like generation of kids who like grew up watching that a woman like her could be that. Do you know what I mean? Completely. There was an accessibility to her that I didn't find with most people around in the eighties for sure. There was like a real accessibility to her where I felt like I knew women like her in my own family. Yes. And that was wild to me to see. Um, So yeah, it's like, you know, I, I definitely don't agree with, every statement she's ever made. I definitely think she has said some, I don't agree. I think she said things that are just blatantly wrong. Um, but I also know that she, I don't know, maybe I have a little more room for her in my cultural heart because she did have such an impact on me as a kid. And because I feel like she doesn't feel to me like a cruel person. She seems to me like someone who is you know, like she makes her point and she has her opinions and she's not always right. And that's how the world used to be. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to keep harping on about it, but I just feel like she impacted on very, I very much imprinted on Whoopi Goldberg as a young kid. Um, she was yeah. like the com- the comedic joy of my movie going life for so long. I think it's fun to revisit movies from our childhood or movies that are older once we also kind of see or know who someone has become now. So for example, I'm sure there are tons of listeners who only know Whoopi Goldberg from The View. Mm. And if that's all you know of her, you do not you do not know her. Right. <laughs> like, you do not know her at all. Um, so it's interesting to me to kind of go back and present a fuller picture of someone, again, not as an apology, not as an excuse, but just to kind of revisit a time that was important to us, but also to kind of see someone as a more of a full, full person. She has a really good, um, there was a really good profile of her in the in New York Times Magazine a few months ago. And then I think it was last month or like just a couple of weeks ago where there was a big article in New York Magazine about being in a polycule or like polyamorous relationships. And I guess someone on The View asked her like, or said like, yeah, I feel like you probably have been in some of those in your life. And she was like, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so, so she's still out there giving great interviews and, and you know, again, giving her opinion. I think it's it's tough. As you can hear me floundering even now, I think it's really hard. I find it really hard to present your opinion on a regular basis in a world where you're constantly under fire for saying the wrong thing. Mm. So I'm nervous. I get really nervous about seeing someone as a, as a complete and full human being when they've been you know, under fire in the past. So I don't I don't know what people think about me when I present stuff like this, but I worry about it, <laughs> which is why I'm babbling like an idiot right now. We're here to talk about Whoopi Goldberg in the 80s because that was an incredibly influential time for us. And these two movies are choice. I just, I cannot wait to talk about these movies this week. I'm very me excited. Me neither. You're going first, right? All right, I am. So my movie was released (laughs) after The Color Purple in 1987. (laughs) (laughs) 
The director is Hugh Wilson. Uh, it was written by Lawrence Block, who also wrote the novel that this movie is based on, Jeff mm. Loeb, Matthew Wiseman, and Hugh Wilson. And my movie is Burglar. Whoopi Goldberg. She's just your average, hardworking burglar. Is anybody home? I'll give you a one-sentence synopsis. Bookseller by day, thief by night, an ex-con gets caught up in a heist of epic proportions in a bid to win her own freedom. Perfection. Eh, maybe. So, right off the bat, the setup of this movie is wild. She's a bookseller and an ex-convict who is a thief at night. Like, she is still a thief. And I don't think it's ever really laid out what she went to jail for, but you assume it's stealing. But she's still doing it. But I love I just love the fact that this is a movie set in San Francisco and she works at a bookstore and is like deeply San Franciscan. <laughs> From my view, the character is deeply San Franciscan. Um yeah. she's also dressed like Vicki Lawrence and Mama's family in the beginning. <laughs> Which just gives you a glimpse into the amount of character work we're about to see for the next hour and a half. That's right. Uh, Like, she's smoking a cigarette and going up to this house in this big fancy neighborhood. And she's basically just breaking into a safe to steal some some jewels and and some stamps. But what's really weird and funny about this character that I've noticed instantly and I cannot understand why. And I could not find any research to back up why this decision was made. She wears blue contact lenses throughout the movie. Okay, I was about to ask you about this because there's a close-up on her face in this scene and you're like are her eyes blue i was like her eyes are popping in this movie and i was like i wonder did i not notice that she had like light eyes or is she wearing contact lenses absolute contact lenses you just have absolute and it's never explained and it look i know it happens i know there are black people with blue eyes come on but (laughs) the fact is that we know who whoopi goldberg is at this point Right. And nobody thought to explain the the choice for her. Yeah. And I didn't read the original novel, obviously. So I don't know if the original character was supposed to be white. And they're like, let's just pop some contact lenses and it'll be fine. We can't just let her be Whoopi Gold. Like, they could have just let her have her natural eyes. Yeah. So I don't understand the choice that was made there. Am I thinking that maybe it's kind of awesome that maybe she was like, you know what? I want blue eyes in this movie. And they're like, all right, Whoopi, anything you say. And she's like, okay, let's not explain it at all. Let's just let me have my look. I hope that's what happened. That's what I was looking for. I'm like, I'm looking for like a quip or a, an interview or something where she was just like, I just want fucking wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So she's in this house and she, we have this really funny introduction to her as a thief because she, you know, kind of almost gets caught and just goes into hysterics and pretends she works for someone else down the street and then like runs away. Hmm. Then we get to see her real style in her real life when she gets home. So she's stolen these jewels. She's got these stamps. And she's at home with her best friend, Carl, who is played by Bobcat Goldthwait, who in the 80s was so fucking funny to me because I didn't know what cocaine was. <sighs> like, it would be a couple of years till I knew what cocaine was. So I just thought, this guy is so weird and hilarious. Like, he would always do, like, the you know, his shoulders were always up and he was doing the weird voices and he was always like, ah! Like, it was just... He was just funny to me. <laughs> we both got on record about loving Bobcat. Obviously now, like, he's super cool and directs movies and he's amazing. I gotta be honest, it was it was so funny that I actually thought that that voice was his actual voice. Me too! For, you know. 
And then when he grew up and was, you know, kind of like doing things behind the scenes more, I was like, oh, that's not how he actually talks all the time. That was just like a comedic effect. But he's so great in this movie. And I love tenderly, because I'm a tender bitch. I love that he like liked her so much. Like he was like, you're my best friend. I want to take care of you. I want to protect you. And I'm like, aw, Carl. These are best fucking friends. And he's a dog groomer in the movie. Yes. <laughs> like he's just such a tender weirdo. I love it so much. <laughs> but he's great. He is so fucking great and funny in this movie. And I just, I love their relationship. Like you said, I love that. I love their friendship for sure. Yeah. But we get to see, uh, you know, again, the Whoopi character's name is Bernice, Bernice Rodenbar. And we get to see Bernice in her regular element. And I just, I feel like every outfit that Bernice wears in this film is so cool. Like the first outfit we see, she's in like a leather jacket, a red kerchief, and like turquoise jeans with sunglasses. She just looks so fucking cool throughout this movie. Yeah. I can't get over the, the looks. The looks in this movie were in- incredible. Um, so what, then, you know, we ca- we see her at work at the bookstore, and it's very funny because she catches a thief, like, right away. He comes up to the register with one book, and she's like, that'll be like 60 bucks. And he's like, what the fuck? And she's like, well, I'm charging you for the books in your bag. But she does it in such a cool way. But then we get to meet another prime character in this film, Ray, played by G.W. Bailey, who most people will know from the Police Academy movies. And he, Ray is is a cop, and we find out that she owes Ray $20,000. We don't yet know why in the beginning of the film, but later it comes out that um, he's basically blackmailing her. So he found her prints on a set of gloves at a job that she pulled before she went to prison. uh, And he's threatening her with going back to prison and releasing this evidence uh, if she doesn't give him $20,000. So she's basically like, hey, I need your help if you want this 20,000 bucks, I need your help to sell these jewels and this stamp because my fence basically died. So he sets her up with this pawn shop guy and the pawn shop guy sets her up with a dentist. And the dentist is played by Leslie Ann Warren. She's playing Dr. Cynthia Sheldrake. And Leslie Ann Warren is so fucking funny in this movie. Yes. I can barely stand it. Yeah. She is so (laughs) fucking funny funny. So the pawn shop guy's like, well, I can't really take most of this that you're bringing to me, but if you need money, go see this dentist because she has a job. And the primary setup for the film is Leslie Ann Warren, Dr. Cynthia, wants her jewelry back from her ex-husband. So she's hiring Bernice to go to his apartment, which she weirdly has a key to. And she's like, I I need you to go get this jewelry. I don't want the IRS to find out. Like, I mostly work in cash. And, you know, it's. I just need you to go get this from him. And she kind of gives her the coordinates for how to get get into his apartment. She's also the worst dentist since Steve Martin in Little Shop of Horrors. Like, she is so (laughs) bad at dentistry. It is so, this scene is so fucking funny where basically Bernice is there to, like, just get hired for the job. But she gives her a full exam and fills a cavity anyway. And it is just so funny. Also, this place is fucked up. Yeah. Primarily, if you've gone to a dentist before, they, like, kick the chair back so they can come at your mouth from the top. These motherfuckers are coming at it from, like, the front. Like, they're basically like, just open your mouth and let's just start going to town. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you want to, like, push me back a little bit? You get a better range, you get a better look into my mouth? 
coming in from the top instead of looking at it straight on. No. That was sus from from jump, where I was like, These, this, this dentist is not good. Well, also, <laughs> there's a lot of shit that's sus about this dentist, that being the primary flag. Yes. But there's also... These indicators, like the fact that she only takes cash and she at one point says like, well, most of my patients are immigrants. And I'm like, oh, shit. So you're just taking money. And look, I've been to dentists like this in my life. Yes. Where she's doing the bare min and doing it in cash just so she can fill her own fucking pockets. But the fucking hygienist, and this is something that I also love about this movie. There's a lot of dick punching and ball punching in this movie. Mm-hmm. And the hygienist, basically, while he's trying to do a preliminary look inside of her mouth thing, is like rubbing his crotch on her hand that's on, hanging on the edge of the the chair. And she just grabs his nuts and is like, the fuck, dude? <laughs> Bernice does not care. Does not care. She she definitely does some dick kicks and some ball hugs. And <laughs> she loves a dick kick. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to eight, nine, ten-year-old Danielle... Height of comedy. Oh, yeah. Height of comedy. And they they deserved it. So there's that. <laughs> Absolutely. So this dentist is fucked, but like gives her this job and they she goes to the husband's apartment and it's kind of like this stereotypical 80s gross bachelor apartment. I definitely could do a whole episode talking about the apartments in both of our films. Oh, yeah. Big time. But she gets the jewelry. It's in like a lean cuisine box in the <laughs> freezer, which is again so 80s. It hurts. Uh, but he comes home mid heist. So she has to uh, hide in the closet, but she accidentally leaves her like little heist briefcase in the bedroom. So now she's worried. She's in the closet. She's hiding. He's having sex with some woman that she can't see. Very loud. Real loud. He comes and opens the closet and like to get something out of it. She's face to face with his dong. And he closes the closet and locks her in. And then, while she's still in the apartment, somebody comes in and kills this husband. So when she does finally get out of the closet, he's dead with this weird tool sticking out of his chest, and her briefcase is gone. Mm -hmm. So the dentist, Dr. Cynthia, is taken into custody under suspicion of murdering her ex-husband. And again, Leslie Ann Warren in this scene is so fucking funny talking to her lawyer. I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard. She's just like, like rich woman who never expected herself to be in this position. <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but it, the, the point of the scene is that basically she sets, Ber- she sets Bernice up for, to, she kind of frames Bernice and is like, I know someone who was in the apartment who might've been stealing. Um, so she sets Bernice up for the murder, which then puts some cops on the case. One of the cops is John Goodman. <laughs> yeah. The other cop is Anne DeSalvo. They are the weirdest team up, and I fucking love it so hard. Dude, I could not get over this duo the entire film. I'm like, what is their vibe? <laughs> There's so, such a weird vibe. Detective Nicewander and Detective Todris are their names, which they never say, I don't think, at all in the movie. But it is the weirdest vibe because it's not bumbling idiot vibe. It's just like we're competent detectives, but we kind of still can't figure out what's going on here in this case. Yeah. They're just always a beat behind. It's very, very funny to watch them together. Yeah. And she takes the lead a lot, which I like because he's just like, I'll, you can do whatever you want. 
(laughs) You do whatever you want. So she's like kicking doors that are reinforced with steel bars. And like, she's really fucking herself up. And he's like, you do whatever you fucking want, dude. I'm your partner. I'm here to support you. (laughs) Yeah. So interesting. But they basically, they're trying to find Bernice and they go to like her, like she's again, just so funny because she gives them her address and place of business. And it's like an empty lot. At a gay and lesbian American Indian task force storefront. So she's just, she's all, she's plays the system. You get the, the feeling that Bernice plays the system constantly. Like she's not, you're not going to know where she lives. You're not going to know how to find her. You're never going to be able to get a beat on her. Right. And that's probably because she planned on continuing to steal when she got out of prison. Right. So at one point we see her in her actual space and she calmly makes a sandwich while there are cops screaming up to her door. They weld her door open in, like, a big pill shape, which is weird to me. I've never seen that before. <laughs> and it trips an alarm, and, like, doors start slamming, and, co- like, one of the idiot cops starts shooting. And they basically just rip this apartment to fucking shreds trying to find her or her tools to prove that she killed this guy. Mm. But she's hiding behind a fake closet wall in her bedroom. Because she's a fucking genius. And she realizes at one point after talking to Dr. Cynthia's lawyer that the only way for her to get out of this is to find the real person who actually committed the murder. That's the only way she'll clear her own name. So the rest of the movie is basically her doing that. I will not ruin it for you. I will say there are some sterling Carl moments uh, <laughs> that come in during this. He's He's not really like her... Like, they haven't teamed up, but he's helping her in the way that only Carl can. Um, So at one point, they're at a bar, and he says, I'll have a bucket of Cure Royale. Like, he's just so awkwardly sitting there trying to talk to people. And then at one point, he tells Bernice, if you coat your stomach with olive oil, you can drink all night and not get drunk. Okay, I was like, is that real? Is that a real thing? There's no way that can be real. For the film? I... Couldn't understand. If that was real, somebody would have discovered that a century ago. Yeah. There's no way that is real. (laughs) I'm thinking you're mixing olive oil. Olive oil does not coat your stomach like a Pepto-Bismol commercial. You know, when they show the Pepto going in and just like, oh, it's going to coat your stomach. No. You're going to drink it and then you're going to pour alcohol on top of it and it's going to make the puke come out faster as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I I was like, is that an old tale that somehow made its way to this movie or was it created just for the film? I was I was very confused. But I was like, brilliant if true. I need to try it. Let's try it. <laughs> tell, try it. You, you go first. You try it and tell me how hard you puke. <laughs> now that you've made your esophagus like a lubed up expressway <laughs> coated in olive oil. Oh, shit. But Carl also gets taken in for questioning at some point. And <laughs> he says a series of wild shit in a very 1987 Bobcat Goldthwait way to the point where the cops are like, we have got to let this guy go as soon as possible. Like, there's no way we're going to get anything from him, but also we cannot take it. Like, he's just rambling and shouting, and it's fucking hilarious. It's hilarious. It's a very funny scene to me. Mm -hmm. So the movie, again, will not ruin the ending for you. We never do. But to watch Bernice try to kind of figure out who killed this guy is really exciting. Um, You're not ever really sure if she's going to do it. When you find out the real killer situation, it's surprising and cool. 
And I just, yeah, I just, I loved her going around to all these places and putting the puzzle together and meeting like a weird artist. And I don't know. I just, I loved it. Yeah. Getting almost chomped by a Doberman. A lot of uh, dog trauma. Dobermans were so <laughs> prevalent in the 80s. Also, that part with the artist is so crazy because, so there's a scene where she goes to the loft, the artist loft of, of, of this person, right? The artist guy owns a giant Doberman that kind of lunges at her, at Whoopi's character when she arrives, right? And then he immediately goes to the freezer He's holding a machete, not a machete, a meat, a meat cleaver. Yeah. In his hand, goes to the freezer, pulls out like a package of frozen ground beef, and then takes the meat cleaver and like slices it in half, and then just like gives one half of this tray of frozen ground beef to the dog. <laughs> like, Damn, that's how you feed your dog, dude. It's so intense. I thought for intense. sure that Dobermans were going to be a much bigger problem in my life based on all the movies I saw in the 80s. Oh, yeah. That's how you conveyed, like, this dog will fuck you up. Is you had a, a, The Dobermans were the Rottweilers of the 80s, essentially. And then feeding them, like, raw meat was the indication that they were going to They're kill tough you. as nails. Yes. They were fucking nails. And I've, I've had a Rottweiler. I had a Rottweiler in the past, and and... They're sweethearts. And I, Dobermans might be too, but I've never fucked with a Doberman because of the 80s and the movies I saw. I was going to say, this is like a trope of 80s movies is like the vicious dog that gets fed raw meat <laughs> and uh, is going gonna, is gonna to fuck with the protagonist or somebody. Or it's usually a villain. Yes. That's like how, the, how a villain in an 80s comedy goes down is that they're like in an alleyway and it's like 10 Dobermans and they're all like slobbering, waiting to chomp. So they've got on metal collar, like link chain metal collars, like <laughs> yeah. thick ones. It's fucking amazing. But I, I just, that. yeah, I think this movie is funny. The plot is funny and interesting. And it's just, again, will be at the height of her comedy movie glory. I agree. I, I, lo- I loved it too. I haven't seen this movie probably, well, God, I probably have seen it only once. And I, and I kind of barely remember it. But I think it was on cable once, uh, and that's where I saw it. But it was, like, she's got, like, moments of legit great acting in this film. Uh, even in the conte- context of it being kind of like a crime comedy, she's got, like, actual chaps. She's one of the best smoking actors I've seen, I realized. I was like, she's a good <laughs> smoke actor, you know? Yep. Like, she knows how to smoke cigarettes properly, and she can do things that act really well while smoking, which I think is a skill, I have to say. It is. And I just, like, I adore the world, that, you know, because, again, it's this whole, like, kind of thing where I'm, like, Whoopi's kind of, again, like, in her, like, uniqueness and her clothes and her apartments and her kind of look and uh, in San Francisco, which, you know, she's, like, a wa- she owns a bookstore. You know, it's, like, these are, like, things that, I don't know, I think I internalized as a kid and thought, it's, you could be, like, a cool lady who owns yeah. a bookstore and then maybe gets up to some weird stuff at night, but has like this really wacky best friend who, you know, washes dogs. Like all of these like little, you know, kind of character traits were always like really fun and unique to me as a kid. So, yeah, I agree. Could not agree more. And your movies too, like her apartment and your movie was my dream as a kid. It's going to be another one of these things where <laughs> so 
I told myself this week because the past several weeks of the podcast, I've gone so hard on films that it's kind of like I found myself going, I got to like take it down a notch. <laughs> so I, I, I have extreme passion for this film. I'm going to give you an appropriate amount of it and then all the rest of it I'll just have to write about on my Substack or something because I just can't <laughs> believe how much I love this movie. My movie for the theme Whoopi Goldberg in the 80s is from 1986. It was written by David H. Franzoni, J.W. Melville, Patricia Irving, and Christopher Thompson, directed by Penny Marshall, and it's called Jumping Jack Flash. The Balance of Power safety of America and the fate of the free world are all in the hands of a woman yeah. named Whoopi. Hi. Okay, so up top, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you already know how I feel about at least one aspect of this film. And <laughs> I'm realizing now that I probably should have sp- said spoiler alert all those times because it's basically the <laughs> End of the film. The big reveal at the end of the film that I love so much that I can't even express it properly on a podcast, okay? But I'm going to say I'm going to talk about it again. So I will say I'm spoiling this almost 40-year-old movie, and please fast forward if you'd not like that to happen, okay? There's your warning. That's fair. Okay. So, needless to say... I adored this movie when I was a kid. Like, watched it over and over anytime it was on TV. I actually think we we didn't own a lot of physical media, my family, back then, but I think we might have actually owned this one on VHS. I don't remember. And in all honesty, it's such a perfect movie for me as a kid because it was funny. It was weird. It had action. It had like a boomer nostalgia soundtrack of like, you know, Motown and, you know, the Rolling Stones and everything. It was Saturday Night Live adjacent, very important for Mm -hmm. me as a kid. And yet I just realized yesterday that it was directed by Penny Marshall. Really? I literally had no idea that Penny Marshall directed this film. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that's like a common thing unless you know. I I've <laughs> have had to look up a list of films that she's directed recently, which is the only reason that I knew. But I don't think it's like it was out there as like a Penny Marshall joint. Well, well it was her first <laughs> film, right? So I'll just use that as an excuse. But also just as a person who's watched this movie like 20 times and I didn't know who directed it, that is irresponsible. Even if I was 10 or 8. <laughs> you should- <laughs> I'm being very hard on myself, but I'm just shocked that I didn't know that Penny Marshall directed this film. So, yeah. Here is a one-sentence synopsis of Jumping Jack Flash. A quirky bank employee finds herself in the middle of an international espionage plot after beginning an instant message conversation with a British spy, codename Jumping Jack Flash. Very good. Very true. Very good. Okay, so generally, Whoopi plays a woman named Terry Doolittle. She's a single woman living in New York. She works as a bank employee, okay? 
And when I say that, she's not like a bank teller, but she's more like somebody who kind of works on the back end in this like room full of other people that are kind of doing the same thing. They're doing these like international transfers over a computer, okay? And I'll say right now, if the sight of old tech makes you fucking sick as it does for us, get ready. You're about to be nauseous. You'll be yeah. so fucking nauseous in this movie. It's going to be a barfarama for you because these computers, we're talking giant fucking computers. Gray. With like gray <laughs> with like the green scr- fonts and like the loud clunky keyboards. We're talking MS-DOS. <laughs> and like there, there's like a, a running joke in the film that one of her, their computers is so screwed up that it's getting like Russian television like broadcast into the the computer, which I don't know. I feel like that was like a boomer joke that got like kind of crammed in there because if you're a real computer nerd, you're like, how is that even possible back then when there was no computers were not on the grid and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Whatever. But anyway, not on the grid. it's a, it's a joke I love that, it. Keeps happening in the film. But anyway, so Whoopi's co-workers in the bank include Carol Kane, John Lovitz, Phil Hartman, rest in peace King, and Stephen Collins, who is the dad from Seventh Heaven and has like a barrage of terrible shit on his Wikipedia page and you just have to look it up. It's not great. Anyway, the, the thing about this office is that like everybody is, they have this like great office camaraderie, right? Like they they all have like love for each other and they have each other's backs. It's very cute. They're having a, a party for one of their coworkers who's about to have a baby. And this is when you kind of realize that Terry, uh, the Whoopi character, is kind of like this misfixed of the office. Like she's kind of like helping everybody out. She fixes people's computers and everyone really loves her. Okay. And This is when I started thinking about her character in this film. Because now that I'm watching this as an adult, all right, I'm looking at Terry Doolittle. And I'm like, man, she has got that black nerd girl joy. And I absolutely fucking love it. Like, she's, her role in this movie, she's like a fun, funky dresser. She's got, like, fun little toys at her desk. You know what I mean? You find out at some point she loves classic movies and rock and roll music. And her apartment is this, like, you know, pop culture heaven of, like, giant toothbrushes and cool posters. And I'm like, when I was a kid and I was watching this, I was like, yes, obviously, like, she's so cool and, like, Terry Doolittle rules. But now I'm like... Have we all, like, unknowingly modeled ourselves after Terry Doolittle? Like, she's kind of the ideal, (laughs) like, cool adult, you know? I don't know if you think that. I thought that. She was the only example I had as a kid that I could even have that life. Yes. And aspire to that. (laughs) She was a computer nerd. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, think about, like, the gravity of that. She was, like, an 80s black woman who was a computer nerd but was, like, cool as shit. And I just was, like... What a character. I can't even believe that 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 happened in 86, you know? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's great. So, Terry and her coworkers, they got a dick boss named Mr. Page, and he's constantly up her ass all day, every day. But in spite of this, the day of the uh, baby shower, she's about to clock out for the evening, and she, like, walks past her computer, and then all of a sudden, bleep, bleep, bloop, It's a random message from someone. So we've established that she's doing international bank transfers. So she's communicating with people overseas. Her boss keeps telling her, don't make friends with these people. You're supposed to just like say, 
end of transaction or whatever, okay? But she does because she's cool and she's got a great personality and people like her. So she sees that this message pops up and she's like, huh? And it is a person that eventually identifies themselves with the codename Jumping Jack Flash, okay? You find out at some point that he's apparently a British spy who is stuck in an unnamed Eastern European country and the KGB is about to close in on him, which, you know, 1980s, Russia and the KGB were definitely on people's minds in this era, right? But that he needs to be extricated by the British consulate in America to come home, right? Because he actually lives in New York. There's a, a scene where she actually goes to his apartment, which I think is wild. But so basically, this person, uh, you know, Jack, as he's called, he set, sets up a thing that says, hey, will you carry a message to the consulate for me? so I can get out of here and come home. And of course, it sets off this whole series of events of people who are like looking to keep Jack in his position to eventually be killed by the KGB, right? And essentially, Terry takes on the task of like saving this guy's life. Like, she spends her evenings in the bank messaging back and forth with Jack. And this is like, this whole sequence or the sequences that happen in this movie about the instant messaging thing, like, because she's beginning to get intrigued by him. She's like, huh, what's his vibe? You know what I mean? Like, eventually she reveals that she's a woman and that he's a man. And huh, maybe sparks are flying all over the internet, right? The proto-internet, we don't even know. 86 internet. But this whole stuff reminded me, it just like rocketed me back to my early internet days where I was like chatting with people, aka boys, on AOL Instant Messenger, and just the thrill of it, right? Just the thrill of, like, staying up all night, instant messaging with people was great. I don't think I did that. I mean, I, I do know what you mean, though. Like, the, the just meeting people online was a thrill. But I never really did the messenger thing because I, I was an adult by that point, so I had jobs and <laughs> I couldn't afford a computer. So I love hearing about people being like, we met on AOL, like, instant messenger. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Wait, so you're acting as if you're, like, 20 years older than me. You didn't, like, we were kind of, like, around the same age. I mean, I had Instant Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger, until, like, my mid to late 20s. Like, that technology was still around. And then, I don't know what came after it. Friendster or something? I don't know. No, like, I, I knew it existed, but I couldn't afford a computer. So I didn't personally use it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was all about AOL. Back even in high school when my parents got a free AOL account and I used my family computer to like go on message boards to like talk to people who like ska music and then we would take it to the instant message <laughs> and I would awesome. would like love, love chatting away. And it just, this movie reminded me of it. Like I was like, oh my God, like what a fun world of innocence <laughs> yeah, and chatting to strangers online. So... You know, just to, like, wrap it up a bit, I mean, Terry persists in this quest to help Jack return to America. There's a lot of, like, hijinks that happen. At some point, Jack agrees to take Terry to dinner at a fancy restaurant if he makes it back. So there's that. There's that uh, enticing proposal. There was, like, at least two scenes where I thought this is the height of comedy for me. As a kid, there was the scene where she has to sneak into this like gala event at the British consulate and she dresses like one of the Supremes. <laughs> and <so weird. laughs> 
uh, which is like a, a little a little flimsy in terms of an entry to get into this like private party, but she manages it and then eventually gets her dress caught in a paper shredder. And I literally thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. That happened a lot in the 80s. Again, paper shredders and, and Dobermans I thought were going to be big enemies in my life. <laughs> yeah, it was very like physical comedy, like almost kind of like slapstick. I was obsessed with it. But then there's another scene where she's in a phone booth and she, suddenly the phone booth gets hijacked by this evil operative who's dressed as a uh, tow truck driver. And then all of a sudden the phone booth gets dragged on the back of this tow truck down the streets of Manhattan. That was the funniest fucking thing I think I've ever seen when I was a kid. Yeah. And she screams, I'm a little black woman in a big silver box. Like it was like, <laughs> th- like I thought this entire sequence was so funny. Like, so there's all those moments as a kid that I just like really loved. And I actually think they they still are funny. Like I was laughing at the fucking paper shredding scene. I was like, this yeah. is still funny to me. I love that it's still funny to me. But here's the thing. Okay, so we're going to cut to the end. And like I said, I'm spoiling the movie. Sorry, but I have to because it's my favorite part. All of the trials and tribulations that Terry Doolittle experiences now that she's been thrust into this world eventually pays off because Jack makes it home. He makes this connection point with the help of a couple people, actually, like Annie Potts at one point, (laughs) plays the character that helps her. There's also like kind of a, um, a, a princess character that comes in and sort of helps ease things along. And then... You know, unfortunately, at the aforementioned Stephen Collins character comes and helps at some point. So anyway, we're now at the end of the film. Jack is home. He promises that he's going to take her to dinner, but then doesn't show up. So you're thinking, oh, whoopee, no. Like, he's not showing up. She had to eat breadsticks alone for hours and got stood up. But then she's at work and she's like, I'm so depressed that I never got to meet Jack. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Here's a message from Jack. And she's like, no, you stood me up. I want to talk to you. But then she realizes that he's in the office (laughs) and he's revealed to be Jonathan Price. (laughs) This is the thing that I have internalized and thought about for the last 38 years. Is this world where Whoopi Goldberg falls in love with Jonathan Price. <laughs> Say more about that. <laughs> because it's such a unique pairing of people. And at the time, at least for me, like watching modern entertainment in the 80s, I did not see a lot of interracial couples at all. Yeah. So I was like blown the fuck away that this could happen. Like, they're, like, walking out arm in arm, and they're about to, like, go hook up. Like, I was, like, blown the fuck away by it. And for some reason, I had a crush on Jonathan Price for years because of this movie. And I didn't even know who he was. I didn't know he was a famous actor. I didn't even know he was in Brazil. I just had this, like, weird childhood crush on Jonathan Price because he fell in love with Whoopi Goldberg at the end of Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yeah, there's definitely a moment where I realized, even now, watching it again for the first time in so many years, that she has a real, like you said before, like she has a real Julia Roberts moment of, yes. oh, he's he's here and he's choosing me. I don't think I've seen, I didn't 
And up, up to that point as a child, I'd never seen that. Yeah. With a Black woman at the center. She was a cool girl. And I think to me, I was like, yes, the cool girl can also be a romantic lead. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty special when you realize that as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and again, think of the time that we were in. Like, in the 80s, it was all, like, fucking statuesque, six-foot-tall blonde models were the only people that got that kind of play. Yeah, exactly. And I just was like, wow. And, like, <laughs> like I swear this is so corny. I put a lot on this movie, and I, and I know that, but I'm here to tell you, like, I also will not apologize. But the feeling that I get when Terry finally meets this guy, it just makes me so tingly and feels so happy because it's like, I don't know. I think it's because, like I like I said, I really took to her in this era. And I want, she had a crush on this guy on the internet. Like, I'm glad they got together. Like, she saved his life. They built a bond. I love it. I love it. Now, here's, here's my question. As someone who, because I also love this movie, but as someone who has watched this movie a lot, you are on your computer and someone's like, yo, I need help getting out of this unnamed Eastern European country, but you have to figure out my password first using the song Jumping Jack Flash. <laughs> Whether it's in 1987 or present day, are you doing it? Uh, it's a no for me because I just, <laughs> that's a lot of work. Like there was that moment in the movie where I was like, yo, she really like woke up in the middle of the night and was like, I'm going to listen to this song and like, take a pen to paper and figure it out. I, I mean, I would have been like, it's not worth getting out of bed for. Like, I'm intrigued by this, but that's a lot. In this freezing cold, cold apartment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So yeah, you're right. I think that's the magic of the movie is that ultimately yeah. she was willing to do that for this guy, which is very cute to me. Which also speaks to her personality as a character that she's willing to take on this adventure. You know, she wants that kind of adventure in her life. Yeah. I, I love it. And... Like I said, there's just so much to love about this film. I mean, there's really great cameos, like like I said, just the SNL connection, but also like Roscoe Lee Brown and like Michael McKean and Tracy Ullman and, you know, Jerome, I think it's Jerome Crabbe. Remember we talked about him in Crossing Delancey and he yeah. was the asshole husband in Prince of Tides. Like I was like, he, of course he's in it. If you're talking about international espionage, what a perfect character actor for that role, you know? And so, I don't know. I just, I love this movie. I think I love it more now than I did as a kid, and I don't know how that's possible, because I loved Aww. it a lot. <laughs> and, and maybe it's because now I know who Jonathan Price is, and, I, you know, obviously I just <laughs> finished watching The Crown, but I was like, oh, remember when you had that weird crush on that guy because of Jumpin' Jack Flash? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't breathe. I love that you. <laughs> I love that you had a crush on him. It's like a little eight-year-old. That's so cute. It's pure joy, you know. Like that's the thing to me is that I'm like, you you go through these movies from childhood, and some of them don't hold up, and everybody's problematic, and there's just but but there was this moment that I realized that I want I was watching this movie again, and I was like, I loved this movie so much as a kid. It still holds up for me, maybe even more so. Because now, like, <laughs> I realized that it's it was so prophetic in terms of the instant messenger technology and all that yeah. stuff like that. I think it's, as, as a computer movie, it's actually kind of cool. And I just really, like, I, I feel like Whoopi in this movie was, like, everything to me. You know, like, I just remember, like, 
really loving her character and her style. Like, listen, I'll post this on our Instagram, maybe, but like, someone of my friends actually has a giant toothbrush in their in their apartment, <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, we got to do a side by side where I'm holding the toothbrush just like Terry Doolittle in in Jumpin' Jack Flash as a homage to that movie. And I think it's actually the, pi- the picture on my letterbox. If you go to my personal letterbox account, my picture is the Jumpin' Jack Flash toothbrush. So there's that. <laughs> we have to find someone with the big crayon as well. I know, I know. And I just, I don't know. I just love this movie so much. And I'm just glad I got to watch it again for this theme because, you know. Me too. I love it. Me too. I'm so glad we chose it. I'm so, so glad we got to rewatch both of our films. Yeah, I did too. And the month rolls on. If you'd like to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Send us short questions, please, for bonus episodes. Uh, we also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten letters. And you can find our P.O. box address on our Linktree account, which is linked on our Instagram. Uh, we are at I saw pod on Instagram, Blue Sky and X, formerly Twitter. Uh, You can also leave us a voicemail to play for the show now. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to isawwhatyoudidpod at gmail.com. It has to be 60 seconds or less, and please record in a quiet space. Absolutely. And we have merch. Go to exactlyrightstore.com to find all of it, basically. Clothing, other whatnots, it's all there for you. And our bonus episodes come out on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. That's right. So, Danielle, would you like to announce the movies for the next episode? Yes. Our movies for next week are The Joy Luck Club from 1993 and Little Darlings from 1980. Fantastic. Well, as always, Danielle, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. The best. Goodbye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. And you can email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. <laughs>